So I've, I've called this talk um, Buddhism in a Time of, of Moral Crisis or Moral Conflict, um, just kind of reflecting on, on our country after the last election. Um, and, and the first thing I just want to presence is I think there are, there are so many good people you know, on both sides of the political spectrum, quiet, ordinary, decent people trying to do their best, um, who often don't get, you know, they're not making noise, so they're not in the limelight, this kind of thing. Um, I think it's very much true that, that pain is loud. Pain is the loudest signal in our body and it, it's also a very loud signal in society. And a lot of the, the strident voices at, at either end of the political spectrum are often pain-driven. And so, in order to, to frame this, um, I want to talk about five dimensions of morality. These are, some of you have heard me talk about this before, that um, anthropologists and ethnologists have studied moral rules around the world, and, and all moral rules fall into one of five dimensions, you might say. And so the first is, you might say, care or not harm. All the rules, you know, love thy neighbor, you know, don't murder, these, these sorts of rules. The second axis has to do with fairness. The third has to do with purity. The fourth has to do with respect for authority. And the fifth has to do with um, loyalty to one's in-group. And the thing that's fascinating about these, these five dimensions is that, very stereotypically, most liberals are at 100% on the first two. Like, liberals are all about compassion and care and about fairness, but they're, they're almost at zero on the other three, you know, question authority, you know, fight tribalism, this sort of thing. Whereas stereotypically conservatives are more like 50 to 60% across all five. And so right away, it's a very interesting situation in which liberals are saying to conservatives, well, you're not fair enough, you're not compassionate enough, and conservatives are saying, well, you don't respect authority enough, and you're not pure enough, and you don't take care of your own kind enough, you know, this kind of thing. Um, so very interesting, just, you know, each one is in, already in a position to judge the other from, a, you know, with a kind of moral superiority, which itself is interesting. I'll also say that we live in a time in which um, in which there's really an epidemic of toxic shame, and that um, so many people have been touched by toxic shame. So many people, so many behaviors are are moved by it. Both the the way the people are shut down, as well as the way people are activated. A lot of the, a lot of the. Um, you know, drama and dysfunction and even violence is driven by, by uh, toxic shame in some way. And it 
toxic shame plays out in different ways for conservatives and liberals in this country. It's interesting. Um, Again, speaking very stereotypically, and of course there are exceptions to all these patterns, but in general, liberals are more ungrounded by toxic shame, that it, it results in more of insecurity, worry. Liberals are, are worriers in many ways. Um, it results in higher degrees of neuroticism and self-doubt. Uh, so liberals have these, but then liberals also tend to be very open-minded and very, very you know, well-developed in the, in the upper chakras. Conservatives tend to, toxic shame tends to produce uh, moral disgust in conservatives. And so that's something more projected. You know, these other people, these other behaviors, those are, those are disgusting. Those are repulsive, you know. Um, and because of that, conservatives are, tend to be more grounded, more solid, if, you know, if, if anything, a little more rigid, um, less open-minded, um, they tend to be more disciplined and uh, more organized, more, and you might even say more willing to be organized, again, from the, um, that whole uh, obedience to authority thing. Uh, it, it's relatively easy to organize conservatives, you know, organizing liberals is like herding cats. Um, so how does all this look through the lens of Buddhism. And these, these five moral um, rules, these five moral dimensions, uh, Buddhism has a very interesting take on them. Um, I'd say the first one, care not harm, that's the only one where I'd say Buddhism is sort of this unqualified, you know, 100% on. You know, it's the only one where it's lining up uh, completely with the liberal position, um, you know, Buddhism valorizes compassion as one of the, the keys to the Great Awakening, you know, com- compassion is a, a primary quality of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, um, and so Buddhism is all about that. The next one about fairness is really interesting. Buddhism doesn't really make any great statements about fairness. And in fact, Buddhism developed in a world that was grossly unfair, you know, and and more or less took that for granted. Um, I will say there's a tendency, I think a little more among liberals, to imagine that the idea of karma is some kind of guarantee of cosmic fairness. And, And I really think that that is ultimately a kind of misunderstanding of, of what karma is. Um, as far as practical kinds of fairness, we, I, we could distinguish, uh, I'll distinguish two kinds of fairness. One is the fairness of social systems or social constructs. Um, I'm not sure that Buddhism has any um, position just on fairness itself, but insofar as a social construct, say racism, is unfair and it's actually causing material harm to people, Buddhism, again, because it, it's so motivated by compassion, would be interested in 
alleviating that harm or writing, you know, writing the ways that harm was being done. Um, I actually find anti-racist work deeply consistent with Buddhist principles in that way. Another kind of fairness, which is which is very different, is the um, or lack of fairness is is the whole issue of human talent and human abilities, you know. And it it's kind of a fact that there are some people who are athletically gifted. There are some people musically gifted or gifted in math or writing or dance or acting or this sort of thing. And there are some currents within liberalism that have a have a problem with that or are embarrassed by that or, you know, the and this leads to kind of the logic of everyone gets a trophy. Um and I don't think Buddhism would be uh, would take a particularly uh, uh, good view of that. I mean, ultimately, you know, we're we're trying to not look at something that's real and and paste over it with our ideals, that kind of thing. Now, the third one, purity. It's interesting because I think. For conservatives in this country, if we ask them about purity, it would be purity around sexual behaviors or purity around, you know, some kind of behaviors um, and some kind of, you know, behaviors of, you know, those people who are doing things differently, you know, they're being impure, this kind of thing. Um, in Buddhism, in some ways, the primary purity is the purity of one's mind and one's mind states. You know, is my mind pure from monkey mind chatter? You know, is is my heart pure, you know, pure to feel compassion and bodhicitta? Um, and so it's purity of a different order, purity that requires um, quite a bit of discipline, actually. Uh, And certainly, you know, it's a, how can I say, a, 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 if there were many people pursuing that kind of purity, it would, I think, provide a, a very um, powerful counter-argument to the, the kind of purity, you know, the more uh, behavioral kind of purity that is being valorized. I'll also say on the subject of purity, it's interesting one way to say it is liberals like their excesses. They like their times of wildness. You know, in the, in the 1960s, there were things like Woodstock and the, the Haight-Ashbury scene. You know, in our, our modern time, there are things like raves and, and the pride parade. And I think conservatives would look at this and say, um, well, that's bad, that's excess, that's impure, you know, with which I think is, is somewhat simplistic. Um, I think if we ask most liberals about it, most liberals, the knee-jerk reaction would just be, well, that's fine, which is also a little bit simplistic. Um, Buddhism, I think, would have a much more nuanced approach. A time of wildness is fine if it's punctuating a life of discipline. You know, in fact, it's part of healthy discipline that 
it allows for times of wildness. You know, if a discipline is so disciplined that one becomes overtamed, then that's 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 not a healthy discipline. Um, the problem is that when people are engaging in the wildness and they're not very disciplined, then they're living a life that's more defined by excess. Um, and the unfortunate thing is that people who live lives defined by excess accomplish a lot less than people whose lives are defined by discipline. You know? It's a... Uh, it's this dirty secret in some ways how powerful discipline is and how powerful it is to live a disciplined life. Now, in respect for authority, Buddhism talks about the Dharma and, and what is the Dharma, you know? And to some extent, the Dharma say when somebody's young or a student, the Dharma is what is written in texts and, you know, the rules that we read and learn about and this sort of thing. That is the Dharma. Um, I think it's really the understanding that ultimately, as one matures as a meditator, one has an internalized sense of the Dharma. That the Dharma is, um, that there's this deep knowing of, of, what the Dharma is for me at this particular moment. It, you know, in other words, I don't, you know, at a certain point, I don't have to go and look up in a text. I can, I can know in my own being, this is what feels right in this moment. Um, and so there's a kind of inner authority. Uh, and that's something very powerful because I think for so many people, their authority is their head. And the head is a lousy authority. The head is a tyrant, you know. Um, But there's a deeper knowing in the core that is actually an exceptionally wise authority if we can quiet the head down enough to get in touch with that core wisdom. Um, And again, if there were a large number of people able to live in that way, um, it would provide a very healthy counterbalance to the more externalized authority kinds of conversations. And the final one, love of one's own kind. And um, unfortunately, sometimes this this plays out in, in conservative circles as, you know, I care only about these people and the heck with those people, you know, like, you know, care for the people that are in the group and, and disregard or even hatred for the people outside the group. Um, And of course, that kind of inside-outside group, you know, Buddhism would not be a fan of that at all. Buddhism is about universal compassion. But I would say also, in Buddhism, one of the three jewels is the Sangha. A very traditional formulation of Buddhism is, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And, you know, there are even, even statements in, in some of the sutras that the Sangha is the most important of the three, you know. And the, the truth is that there's something magic 
that happens when people are doing spiritual work together, you know. And even say this group, now this group is not an official sangha, this is, we're not all, obviously not all living together and, and seeing each other in a 24-7 kind of way, but we come here, we all meditate together, we share energy, and then after the Dharma talk, we talk authentically with each other, and insofar as we're sharing authentically, we're all benefiting, you know, we're benefiting each other by, by just showing up in a real way. And there's something powerful about that and something to be honored. And it doesn't mean that there's anything bad or wrong about the people who don't show up, you know, but there is, is a kind of honoring of the group that exists in the present moment, you know. So in that sense, I think it, there is a kind of uh, valorizing of the value of the present moment group. And so in many ways, I think the perspective of Buddhism is, is much more nuanced and, and um, as is typical, uh, much more challenging to us, much more challenging than some of the pat answers. Um, so I think I'll share the quote sheet now. And... I think we might have just enough for everyone in the room, actually. So, you could pass that around. And meanwhile, I'll share the I just shared it with the virtually with the the non-physical members. I'm physical, but I just am not present. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I didn't mean to imply at all that you were not a physical being. <laughs> um from Lao Tzu and, and then the, the Tao Te Ching, conquering the world and changing it, I do not think this can succeed. The world is a sacred vessel which cannot be changed. He who changes it will destroy it. He who seizes it will lose it. From the Dhammapada, make your mind pure as a silversmith blows away the impurities of silver little by little, instant by instant. Again, this Buddhist idea of purity. The Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, This is half of the holy life, Lord. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. Don't say that, Ananda, says the Buddha. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a monk has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. So, just this incredible valorization of the Sangha. From Kierkegaard, purity of heart is to will one thing. Very, very straightforward. Um, 
Mahatma Gandhi said, Moral authority is never retained by any attempt to hold on to it. It comes without seeking and is retained without effort. Had to put one in by Marx. Politics is the art for art of looking for trouble, finding it every way, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Um, from uh, Pierre Villat Inyat Khan, music teaches us that conflicts are part of harmony. Thich Nhat Hanh says, a Sangha is a community of friends practicing the Dharma together in order to bring about and to maintain awareness. The essence of a Sangha is awareness, understanding, acceptance, harmony, and love. When you do not see these things in a community, it is not tr- a true Sangha, and you should know that you and you should have the courage to say so. But when you find these elements are present in a community, you know that you have the happiness and fortune of being in a real Sangha. A couple from Dr. King. The question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. And he goes on to say extremists of hatred or extremists or love. He also said, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one destiny affects us, affects all indirectly. Oh, and a third one from King. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. An odd one from Ken Kesey. Always stay in your own movie. A few ways to look at that, but, you know, remember that, you know, the way you're judging your life might not be the way that other people are judging their lives. The Dalai Lama said, the ultimate authority must always rest within the individual's own reason and critical analysis. Bruce Lee said, be like water, making its way through cracks. Do not be assertive, but adjust to the object and you shall find a way around or through it. If nothing within you stays rigid, outward things will disclose themselves. That's a fascinating quote in many ways. Gangaji said, Trust yourself. At the root, at the core, there is a pure sanity, pure openness. Don't trust what you have been taught, what you think, what you believe, what you hope. Deeper than that, trust the silence of your being. Jack Cornfield said, Whatever your difficulties, a devastated heart, financial loss, feeling assaulted by the conflicts around you, or a seemingly hopeless illness, you can always remember that you are free in every moment to set the compass of your heart to your highest intention. In fact, the two things you are always free to do, despite your circumstances, are to be present and to be willing to love. Sharon Salzberg said, We need to redefine community and find a variety of ways of coming together and helping each other. Steven Pinker said, if you aren't just brought up in your tribe, but interact with people either directly or vicariously through journalism and literature, you see what life is like from other points of view and are less likely to demonize them or dehumanize others and more likely to empathize with them. A couple from the healer, Sobonfusome, 
We all experience pain in life, conflicts, illness, disappointed dreams, broken relationships, loved ones who die or suffer. It is important to have ways to release pain and to regularly cleanse ourselves. Otherwise, old pain begins to smother our creativity, our joy, and our ability to connect with others. It impacts our health, and it can even kill us. So the way that even healing itself is a kind of purifying. She also said, conflict usually comes up when things start to stagnate, when our egos and controlling selves start to take over our relationship. Conflict is a notice that spiritual energy is being stopped and needs to move. Mokokomo Moka Noana says, freedom of speech gives us the right to offend others, whereas freedom of thought gives us the choice whether or not to be offended. Robert Selner says, the more easily you get offended, the less developed you are as a human being. Very provocative quote. And Sharon Audler says, the only real conflict you will ever have in your life won't be others, but with yourself.